You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. The irony is you can't make yourself available to somebody else to love until you make yourself empty to receive God's love. And uh, that's why we're here today. Talk, are you ready to talk about love? We're in the school of love. Class is in session. Let's go. You may know this experience. Um, somebody else is texting and those little dots on your, uh, on your phone start to come. shows someone else is actually about to reach out to you. Well, when a young adult named Caitlin saw those little dots pulsing on her phone, she could feel the adrenaline surging uh, because it meant Will is typing. And what she was feeling was the chemistry of love. Now, uh, Will and Caitlin enjoyed an online relationship for months, and they spent hours texting, tweeting, Snapchatting, Skyping, until they felt like they knew each other like they knew nobody else in the world. They loved each other. And so they decided to arrange a meeting, and Caitlin drove three states away, 1,000 miles, nine hours, to sit in an actual room with Will. They spent a weekend together, and uh, what she discovered was the feeling wasn't quite the same. After feeling so intimate with somebody, through the mediation of technology, to be literally face-to-face didn't feel like the chemistry of love in the same way. And the reason for that is that they hadn't yet learned how to do the work of love. And the chemistry of love will always follow the work of love. Now, I read Caitlin's story in the New York Times. Some of you, any of you willing to admit you read the column Modern Love uh, Sunday? It'll be there today. Uh, Most of the ladies. I read it too. Um, It's not exactly the school of love, but it's certainly a laboratory of love. We can learn a lot about how life and love uh, today is operating in the world. Um, the editor of that is a man named Daniel Jones, and he reflected on this story of, of Caitlin and Will, and he noticed that this is a trend in American culture right now. Uh, not just the trend of, of online dating, which, by the way, uh, over a third of our marriages in America right now start with online uh, relationships. That's, that's striking. So there's actually really good things about online dating. The, the questions that Jones raised is not so much about the way the relationship starts, but about the work that didn't get done in that relationship uh, when they were face-to-face. And so he makes a, invents a term. It's called SMEAB. Uh, he says, today in America, we have what he calls soulmates in a box, S-M-I-A-B. And he's talking, of course, about the box. Literally, the box is the phone. Uh, but metaphorically, he says there's something deeper than just the technology. Listen to how he explains this. He says, we're always searching for new ways of finding love that don't involve having to feel insecure and vulnerable. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Because who wants to feel insecure and vulnerable? And he said, that's the worst part of the whole love game, putting oneself out there to be judged and rejected. So when we get the chance to hide, whether through type messages we can edit and control, or by saying whatever we'd like over Skype without expecting the relationship to ever turn physical, we're freed from much of that anxiety and we're fooled into thinking this may be a better and truer way of having a relationship. What he's saying is the thing that's crippling our relationships in America right now is fear. Is fear. 
We love the phones because that gives us this illusion of control. And we think, if I can have a relationship with someone who's a thousand miles away, no, I don't have to worry about it, right? Because, you know, they're a thousand miles away. And I can actually say whatever I want to say. And whenever I'm tired of him or her, I can just turn off the phone. I've completely, right? So what could go wrong? But the problem is, we're reaching out for the chemistry of love without doing the work of love. Because we're too scared to be vulnerable and really be who we are and really allow that other person to be who they really are. So in, in, in lieu of that, we become soulmates in a box. Smeabs. Now, I, I want to suggest you to you this morning that this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Um, this is part of the human condition. Uh, fear. Relational fear. And uh, John, the apostle, follower of Jesus Christ, knows all about this. And because of this, he wants to instruct his community. And he takes them, therefore, to the school of love. And I'm going to take you there, too. Let's open our Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 4. And we'll read together verses 7 through 12. Uh, this is John claiming that Jesus uniquely equips us for the work of love because Jesus has something to do with our fear. Let's uh, stand, if you're able, and read uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Uh, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Keep the Bible open, if you, if you will. I want you to see today that Jesus redefines love. He, he doesn't do it to make love easier. In fact, when Jesus redefines love, he makes it harder, but he equips us. He equips us for love. You probably know, if you've been around the church for a little while, that Christians have a special word for love. It's the word agape. And agape is that expression of love that flows right from the center of God's being. And it's, C.S. Lewis calls it supernatural gift love. It's unconditional. It's unlimited. And most of all, it's redemptive. Agape. Now, John uses this word to describe the work of love. In verse 7, you see it here. It doesn't show up well in translation because the word agape is back-to-back, -back, the first two words of that verse. Agape toi, agapomai, he's saying. Aga, sorry, agapomen. Agape toi, agapomen. And it's literally translated, beloved, beloving. Beloved. Beloving, And I think those two words capture the work of love really well. So I'm going to unpack that uh, with you today. This Monday, I had a, a couple of young adults in my office, as I oftentimes do. They wanted to get married. Uh, they wanted it before a lifetime for 50 or more years, like some of you have experienced. And they knew they needed help. 
So what would you say to them if they were in your office? I can't give their real names. Let's call them Will and Caitlin because they're exactly the same age as the two in that Modern Love article. So Will and Caitlin are sitting in your office and they're asking, how do we do this for a lifetime? What do you say? Well, I think you point them to the work of love. I think you point them to these same two words that John's using for his readers. Beloved, be loving. Right? So let's talk a little bit about what that would look like for Caitlin and, and Will. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, marriage today. We have Valentine's Day coming up. By the way, I don't know how you feel about Valentine's Day. I'm, I'm more of a Halloween guy myself. I don't, lo- I don't love Valentine's Day. Um, but you know what? I know that in, like, many of us are not married. Many of us don't want to be married. Thank you very much. But I do think that, that marriage is a good model because the work of love in marriage is the same as work of love in any relationship. So if you're wanting to love your roommate, then I think by paying attention to uh, marriage, you, you have something to learn. And so I'm going to hold up marriage as a model for us of love uh, today and the work of love. So let me uh, ex- work with these two words. Uh, the first is beloved. Here, I want you to see that the work of love is first letting God love you. You cannot skip step one. The work of love is to let God love you. It's only if you do that, your own fear of not being good enough will keep you in a box. It's only if you let him love you that you'll find yourself breaking out of the box and becoming the real you. This point is absolutely clear for John. He insists on it. He says this is not about the, uh, the, our love for God, verse 10. It's, it, it's that God has loved us. And then look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Don't even go there until you realize he first loves you. This is where your love begins. Now, this word beloved uh, is John's favorite way of addressing his readers. He wants them to know they are beloved. What he's done is he's, um, he's taken the verb love and he's inverted it. He's kind of flipped it on its back and made it passive. So it's now it's not love like a command. It's be loved. That's the command. Then what he's done is turned the, this uh, inverted verb into an adjective uh, to describe who you are. So you are people who allow yourself to be loved by God. You're beloved ones. And that's the, that's the first part of the work of love. We love because he first loved us. Do you love yourself? Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how incomplete he would be if he hadn't made you? Do you know that he loves not only the parts of you that you love, he, knows, he loves the parts of you that you don't love. He loves the broken parts of you. It's to experience the fullness of that unconditional love, that agape love that you and I need to attend if we really want to be living people, loving people. This is where the work begins. So oftentimes when I have a couple who's coming, they want to get married, I ask them to sit down the very first time we meet. You can prepare for this now. I'm going to ask you to look in the eyes of the other person, and I'm going to ask you to take their hand, and I want you to tell that person why you love them. Right? Because here's what John says. He says, we love because dot, 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 blank. The truth is that a lot of us would fill in that blank with a lot of different things. Why do you love? 
Think about it. I love because. So I get to hear, you know, I hear all kinds of things. I love you because you're good looking. I love you because I love the way uh, we laugh together. I love that we rock climb together. I love uh, that you're kind to people. I love your integrity. You're godly, whatever. Uh, all kinds of things. And it's really touching, actually, to hear two people articulate their affection for each other in this way. But I have to tell you truthfully, as the pastor in the circle there, I hear all that and I love it and it touches me. But I also go in the back of my head, I wonder if this is going to be enough. Because 50 years is a long time. <laughs> and so John goes, look, I, I want to be really clear that all that stuff is good stuff, but when you think about loving someone, I want you to be able to fill in the blank the way I do. I love you because he first loved me. Okay, that's, the, that's point one. <laughs> I want you to look at that person, if you're married, it's your spouse, and say, I love you because he first loved me. You got to be loved first. This is so important. So here's what I said to Caitlin and Will. I said, you are going to be tempted to enter into this marriage for redemption. You are going to be tempted to look for the kind of love that only God can really give in your partner. And I would say, at that point, you're in trouble. If you don't first let God be your source of love, you will turn your partner into God. If you look to your partner and marriage for redemption, you are setting them up for failure and yourself up for disappointment. This is a really bad place to begin. It's interesting to think about why, as Americans, we enter into marriage. Read a little bit about this this week. Turns out that we have now kind of a scholarly consensus about three different eras of marriage in America. Historians tell us that we complete this expression, we love because, in different ways, depending on what time in American history we live. For example, before 1850, uh, historians call this the era of institutional marriages. In America, life was mostly rural, and so you would love because you needed economic security, uh, physical shelter, and protection. That's why you'd enter into marriage, call it institutional marriage. Then between 1850 and 1965, historians call this the era of companionate marriage. As people start to move into cities, uh, they become more prosperous, and people look for kind of moving up Maslow's hierarchy of need a little bit in their spouse. They want somebody who offers them companionship, romance, sexual fulfillment, companionate marriage. But as of 1965, this begins to change as well. And we find ourselves in this third era, the era we're currently in, which historians call the era of self-expressive marriage. Now, women and men turn to marriage for self-discovery, for self-esteem and personal growth. The ideal for us today is to look into our spouse's eyes and say, you bring out the best in me, which is awesome. If they do that, that's awesome. That's a good thing. But you know what? It's not enough. And it's too much of a burden to put on your spouse. They cannot be God to you. Simon May at Yale says that love has become our new God. Human love is now tasked with achieving what only once divine love was thought capable of, to be our ultimate source of meaning and happiness. Here's how Ernest Becker, Becker puts it in The Denial of Death. He says, if your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. 
This is the reason for so much bitterness, shortness of temper, and recrimination in our daily family lives. Did you get that? Let me just read that again. This is the reason for so much bitterness, shortness of temper, and recrimination in our daily family lives. After all, Becker continues, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. Notice the religious language he uses. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. Needless to say, human partners can't do this. Redemption can only come from outside the individual. Be loved and let that love come from the only one who can give you pure agape love, the only reliable source of love that is truly redemptive. God knows everything about you and loves everything about you. Don't ask your spouse to be that for you. Okay, That's what John understands. That's the first part uh, of, of love's work, love's labor. Uh, let's move on to the second word, and that is be loving. Uh, beloved reminds us that the work of love is first the work of letting God love us redemptively. Uh, the word beloved, beloving, the second word, uh, reminds us that the work of love is second the work of loving another redemptively. So, so if you don't have a source of grace in your relationship, you're not doing the work of love. And you will inevitably keep your mate in a box. See, the first word, beloved, gets you out of a box to become who you really are, beloved. The second word, beloving, is how you create space because you have an experience of grace that allows your mate or your partner to get out of the box and pull the whole relationship now out into three dimensions. First of all, we have to be open to God. Secondly, we have to open up to others. And this involves risk. Remember what Daniel Jones said in Modern uh, Love, that the problem is we resist risking, taking the risk to be vulnerable, because who wants to be judged? Who wants to be rejected? It's only the people that have a resource that mitigates the relational fear that are doing the work of love. So John puts it in this way. He says uh, in in verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. How? Here comes the resource. He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That first beloved raises the question of, 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 of reason. Why do you love? This second word is really exposing us to the resource of love. He sent his son to be a, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has sent his son to provide for all of our human resources, all of our human relationships, a resource of grace. Now, he's got some biblical theology behind this that it's not familiar to us. We tend to think when we relate, we're just two consenting adults. That's not so for John. He understands that when two people relate, God is always in the relationship, and your orientation to God shapes your orientation to one another. So in the background, there's really the story of Adam and Eve. And let me just reprise this for you, because I think it's very important. I actually pulled uh, the Bible out with Will and Caitlin on Monday, and I said, I want to read the first three chapters of Genesis, because there is a lot here for our marriages. Let me just get you into the middle of the story. Do you remember that moment when, after Adam and Eve have fallen, God comes and God speaks to Adam and uh, kind of says, you know, in effect, what's going on? And uh, what was Adam's response? 
You remember his first reaction? It was the woman. Was, she did. She did. Now, now that's kind of funny to laugh at. But look, you know what he's saying? What he's saying? Remember what God had said to them. On the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. Why does Adam say what he says? Because he's thinking, I'm about to die. And I don't, and I can't bear that responsibility. So instead, he's trying to deflect blame and he says, she did it. What's he saying? Kill her. He's offering his wife as an atoning sacrifice for his sin. He's saying, don't look at me, look at the woman. So there's deep teaching here. Essentially what the writer is saying is, if you are afraid of God, if you are not reconciled completely with God, if you don't have an atoning sacrifice that absolutely removes the penalty of your own sin before God, you are going to constantly be deflecting your shame on other people. You'll say, don't take it from me, take it from her. Or you'll be constantly taking it from her. You don't even know why you're doing it. But you don't have a place in your life for your own sin. You're afraid. And they're afraid. And there's no way you can ever be naked and unashamed, which is the model that we get in Genesis 2. Well, by the way, the good news of the story is no one dies that day. In fact, God is very gracious and very redemptive. And he comes to this couple who are just absolutely lost. And he makes clothing for them so that it can be safe for them to be together. He's already bringing them back together. Some people say it's like a divorce and a remarriage. And he's bringing them back together. There's hope for this relationship even after the fall. But he gives them this promise right in the center of chapter 3, verse 15, where he basically says, a son is going to be born generation after generation to you. Speaking to the woman. And we find out now in John's writing who that son is. This is the son of God. Who is who does what? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He brings grace into every relationship. So this is the work of love. It's to grab onto that resource, to keep the atoning sacrifice that is Jesus Christ himself at the center of the relationship. If you have this resource, then you can do the work of love. And there's lots of practical stuff as to what that work is, but none of it is really possible until you have the kind of security that grace offers you. Because let's be honest, whatever the work of love is in your situation, it always requires risk. And it's only if you're secure in a primary relationship, in the ultimate primary relationship with God, that then you could take the risk to love. Jesus himself is our model of this. Though he had equality with God, he didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus was who he was because he was absolutely secure in his primary relationship with the Father. It's this that allowed him to touch the lepers, to eat with the sinners, to care for those who are the least and the last and the lost. And, and, and this is what the Gospels are doing. They're calling into to existence a, a, a community of people who will be willing to take that same risk because they're so secure in God's love. Now they can dare to risk it all, to love people on the margins, to love people who've been outcasts, to love people who don't deserve to be loved. Jesus is the resource. So ultimately, I think John is pointing us to a marriage in which the, the ideal is not to be able to say, you bring out the best in me. No. 
The ideal is to be able to say, Jesus Christ is bringing out the best in us, and we don't have to be perfect for that to happen. We just have to have an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus will die a thousand deaths to allow you to say every single day and as often as you need to, to your partner, I forgive you, and I'm willing to live with your forgiveness of me. It means you can start over again and again and again and keep learning. So that's the twofold labor of love, to be loved and then to be loving. Take my love in, Jesus says, and then give it out. You know, the chemistry of love is not about finding the right person, but it's about being the right person, isn't it? He's talking about two ways of being, being loved, being loving. The culture tells us that your job, if you're not married, is to find the right person. No, I don't think so. Stanley Hauerwas tells us, we never find the right person. He writes, we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, right? We don't know them. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. <laughs> For marriage, being what it is means that we are not the same person ourselves after we've entered it. So here, here's the point. The primary, uh, the, the primary problem morally is learning how to love and care for this stranger to whom you find yourself married. <laughs> Leo Tolstoy wrote, what counts in making a happy marriage is not so much how compatible you are, but how you deal with incompatibility. See, the point here is not to make your spouse the right person. It's to allow Jesus to make you the right person. And then you can love irresponsibly as he has done us. Well, they say that marriage is the graduate school of discipleship. I, I, I think that's because it's so raw to be married and your selfishness gets exposed. But ultimately, it's not the graduate school of discipleship. The real school is the church. And it's not just for married people. It's for all people. Because it's not the marriage per se, but it's covenant relationship. And we are in covenant relationship with one another because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's why this Lent, I'm going to invite you into a small group. And I know some of you are still holding out, but I really want you to join a small group. And I, if you're already in one, I really want you to invite other people in. This Lent, the Kindred Project, is something different. As Ryan said earlier, it's an experience of the multi-ethnic family of God. Not just in the small group, but after Easter, we're going to engage with our partner churches and other people. And you know what? It's not going to be easy. Uh, in fact, love when it's good isn't easy, but we have work to do. And so it's in our small groups that we're going to do that work. By the way, I, I tell you often, when, when, when you're in a small group, God himself puts a person in every small group that I call the EGN. Do you know what that is? The extra grace needed person. Exactly. <laughs> And it's a person who's just got a lot of burdens in their life, and they think it's your responsibility to carry their burdens and the whole group. And, you know, but God intentionally puts that person there, not for their sake, but for your sake. Because the, 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 hard, the, the hard person to love is the person that teaches you best how to love. And so, by the way, if you don't know who the extra, extra grace needed person is in your small group, guess what? <laughs> it's you. It's, it's you. The last person to find out. Well, 50 years from now, by God's grace, Will and Caitlin will sit side by side in a chair in somebody's office, and they'll hold each other's hands, and they'll look into each other's eyes, and the chemistry of love will be there. And it will be there because they've done the work. It'll be there, although their marriage has been hard, and undoubtedly they can talk about postpartum depression, they can talk about the loss 
of a job. They can talk about struggling with addiction and anxiety. They'll tell you stories about the loss of a loved one, maybe even a child. But they'll know that Jesus was with them all the way along, and that Jesus, every time they fell, kept picking them up and giving them strength to take the other one up. And over time, they don't only just know each other better, but they know Jesus better. And that glow in their eyes is the glow of deep, deep appreciation. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, take us to school. Teach us how to love ourselves. Because it's only as uh, we know how much you love us that we're prepared to love our neighbor. And then fill us with your spirit. Empower us. Particularly today, we want to pray for our married couples. It's hard to be married, and we, we pray, pray for them. And, uh, and then we pray for all of us. We pray that we be the kind of uh, covenant community in which nobody is alone, ever alone. Always embedded deeply in uh, a family of faith who loves and cares for them. Let's do that for one another. Empower us for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.